Hello and welcome to the final Oh God What Now of 2022, aka Oh God What Happened. I'm Dorian Linsky and this is my final Oh God What Now for a few months. I'm going to be taking a break to finish writing a book, uh, so let's make this one count. On today's show, we're going to count down the top 10 worst moments of 2022, or at least the most ridiculous. Who will be the lad baby of politics and claim the title of the most dismal moment of the year? <laughs> let's meet the panel. Uh, hello to former diplomat and presenter of Doomsday Watch, Arthur Snell. Hello. Is there, a, is there a Christmas Doomsday Watch? Have you managed to give it a festive spin or is it just... Yeah, well, uh, the, our festive episode is all about the next pandemic, which I think is very, um, oh. you know, very joyful. <laughs> ho, 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 ho. Um, Arthur, the committee looking into the January 6th insurrection in Washington has wound up by recommending criminal charges against Donald Trump. The first time in US history that Congress has taken action like this against a former president. Meanwhile, the Ways and Means Committee has voted to release his tax returns, which he does not want to do. Um, are the walls finally closing in? You have to hope that they are, but I'm afraid that I, I'm not sure. The referral to the Justice Department means that it's now in the hands of Merrick Garland, who was appointed Attorney General by President Biden and is famously conservative and cautious. Um, if you think about the forward timing of likely criminal charges against Trump, it would end up colliding with a presidential election. Um, and that would feel very difficult for a Justice Department, which is part of the executive, trying to prosecute for criminality a potential candidate in the election. So as enraging as it might feel, I think it's quite possible that this will be left to sit in the long grass and the referral itself will be, will, you know, that, that, that will be the gesture, the point that Trump was referred should be condemnation enough. Everybody, I mean, obviously, apart from Trump's uh, idiot followers, is is really hoping that he doesn't win the primary. Life would be life would be so much easier for not just the Democrats but the Republicans. Right, and of course, um, you could argue this is very helpful to Ron DeSantis or whoever else is in poll position on the Republican side to contest the primary against Trump, because y y there are, of course, the idiot followers who will never believe anything. But even for those who quite like Trump. You, you've got to assume that there are plenty who think, well, a candidate who might be in facing criminal charges around the time of the election is really not worth having on the ticket. Also joining us is Podmasters contributing editor Roz Taylor. Hi, Roz. Hello, Dorian. The government continues to refuse to step in and settle the NHS and rail strikes. A minister with the Dickensian name of Will Quince has even warned people to avoid contact sport and unnecessary car journeys during ambulance strikes. It's like that old um, Neil Kinnock quote, isn't it? God help you if you are ill. Has Rishi Sunak boxed himself into the point where he can't back down? And I mean, I, I, how does this end? Well, he'll have to back down eventually. Because this is not a sustainable situation. And now that these unions have crossed the Rubicon of going on strike, which yeah, I don't think in the case of the Royal College of Nursing, they've never done that before. Mm. There is no reason really why they should stop. What Rishi Sunak is doing is trying to hold the line, basically, to discourage people who are currently voting on strikes, for example, teachers who are being balloted at the moment, from deciding to follow the example of the other unions and go for, go for high pay claims as well. And that's what he hopes he, he, he's trying to do and at least hold out for a bit longer. But what we see here is a big and I think quite an important difference between Rishi Sunak and Boris Johnson. I think Boris Johnson would have already backed down on this. And that's because Boris Johnson wanted to be liked. It was important to him to be liked. Much less. <laughs> Hope you didn't listen to this podcast. Then. <laughs> no, but it was. It's much less important to Rishi Sunak that he's liked. What he is going all in on is competence. He is much more single-minded about this dispute. He is some many would say crueler. And the people asking, where does this end? It won't end even when nurses and paramedics get a better pay offer, which they will eventually. It's just a question of time. Because this strike, as we've seen, is not just about their pay. It's about the whole condition of the NHS. And the pay, of course, feeds directly into that because they can't attract enough staff because the pay is too low. And that means the people who are working there can't do their jobs properly. It will only end when the Conservatives, hopefully, lose the next election. And we can acknowledge the scale of what they've done to the welfare state in Britain. Uh, but I don't think that the Conservatives certainly haven't. And I think the country at large hasn't quite acknowledged what has been done to the welfare state so far. Well, the Tories, I suppose, can, can look back on um, the miners' strike 
as an example of a victory. Mm. But I think a better comparison would be, I think, the 1970s, where there were more strikes and more pervasive, and it was really affecting people's lives. Like, I don't remember it clearly with the miners' strike, but it, it, it obviously was not affecting average people as directly as nurses' strike, ambulance yeah. drivers, train drivers, border force, so on and so forth. And so the idea that you can just be a hard man and take on all of these different sectors seems to me delusional when actually the impression is that the government, you know, that the country is sort of falling apart. And as like you said, because of things not only that this government is doing, but the previous Tory governments have done. So it doesn't seem winnable. It doesn't seem like you can do the, you can thatcher this one out. No, I don't think you can. I mean, it's very, very different from the miners' strike. I remember there being shortages of coal because we had a coal fire, for example, and that was more or less as much as it was affecting people. Of course, coal was uh, a dying industry even at that time. It was clear that we were going to move away from coal. It was part of Thatcher's strategy to move away from coal. And of course, ultimately, that proved to be a good thing for the environment. Not that quite like that at all with nurses. Mm. We're always going to need nurses. We're always going to need ambulance drivers. Sunak, of course, is doing his bit to bring back coal. There's a little, there's a little oh, sidebar yeah. there. Yeah. Completing the panel, it's actor and commentator Alex Andreu. Hi, Alex. Hello, Dorian. Uh, the EU, our old friends, um, <laughs> has just reached a deal to cap gas prices in February. The Czech energy minister, Josef Sekela, says we have solved the last piece of the energy puzzle. I mean, have they? And, and can we get the instructions? Well, okay, so Sekela didn't mean that's it, lads. Energy policy sorted. Let's all go home. But, but there was a slate of stuff right. that, that's been going on all year, actually. And, and negotiations came to a head late November and mm. early December. And this was the last of the five, six big ticket items to go through. So in, in that way, um, he's right. It was a six-piece puzzle. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes, for ages four and upwards. <laughs> um, no, look, th- there's now a trigger for capping gas prices if they go above a certain level alongside a joint purchasing scheme, which is really important because it's basically the EU trying to flex its purchasing muscle, you know, to say that we're quite a big buyer altogether. So let's use that. There's also possibly even more significantly, buildings and transport fuel are now part of the emissions trading scheme, which included only industry and energy, which is not even half of the emissions total. So it's now 85% of the total of emissions are within that scheme. There's a new methane um, framework. There's a emissions border tax, which is actually a really big thing. It means that if EU countries import stuff from outside the EU, and that stuff is produced with lower standards and high emissions, there's going to be a tax on it. So, look, all all of this kind of market intervention can go wrong. So we'll have to keep an eye on it because it can backfire. It can have unintended consequences. And Voices saying this doesn't go far enough are right, but as a slate of stuff, as a statement of intent, collectively, this is a massive, massive effect. At a time, most developed countries are backtracking on their their climate commitments, and the EU is kind of going all out. That's good. I've been researching um, a lot of climate science and stuff for a Mm. chapter of my book, and I'm uh, I'm about ready to blockade a terminal. (laughs) <laughs> it's very, it's, it's very radicalising. You're about, you're about ready to throw a can of soup on my face, on your face, not on a beautiful painting, <laughs> but on your face. Yes. <laughs> There's no Christmas top of the pops this year, so instead, please enjoy the top ten countdown from the twenty worst moments of the year. Not half. At number ten. Elon Musk destroys Twitter. The world's richest man at the time, but hilariously no longer, (laughs) tries to buy the social media giant for $44 billion, decides he doesn't want to, then is forced to complete the purchase after legal action. He instigates a reign of error, including opening blue tick verification to anyone with $8, very high quality crowd, (laughs) banning journalists who don't agree with him and holding a poll on whether he should stay on as CEO, which he lost. Um, Alex, this is only really the tip of the iceberg. Is this the biggest cautionary tale in the history of capitalism? 
I mean, I don't think I've ever, ever seen a, such a bad start to new ownership. Um, I think you're harsh. I celebrate Elon. I think we should um, be trying to edge him, provoke him into buying Fox News next, personally. Um, it's, so I, I scribbled down this stat for you, okay? On the 3rd of January, 2022, Tesla's stock traded at $399.93 a pop. Today, it's $137.80. The wonderful thing is that this has killed, I think, the myth of the tech genius bro dead. And possibly even more widely, the idea that, you know, rich people are somehow infallible and operate at some higher level. This just has killed it, hasn't it? I mean, the thing that to me, the really simple mistake is that he he is this chronic case of posters disease where he just cannot (laughs) stop tweeting. And actually, if he'd taken over and he'd done some of these uh, things, some of these very stupid things, but just not kept popping up with some shitty meme or like constantly responding to like people on the alt-right with interesting, he cannot get away from the attention and the attention is make has made the thing so much more disastrous than if he was just doing it quietly and do you know why because he this is the tragic comic dimension of it he came into twitter basically saying big words about echo chambers and how he was going to smash them all. And it turns out that he hadn't realized that he was inside his own hermetically (laughs) sealed echo chamber and what he was doing actually was opening it to the world. And I think that's a parallel with, you know, because he's not the only one, yeah? Bezos with Blue Horizon, I think it's called, and Zuckerberg with the metaverse, these idiot boy projects that are going spectacularly wrong. And then you can draw a parallel even into politics because you have people like Trump and people like Johnson. And it turns out that being surrounded by fawning people over time makes your skin very thin. Suddenly, we are observing Musk slack-jawed absorb the fact that the whole world does not think he's some sort of demigod. And you can sort of feel his ballsack shrinking with every single tweet. You can see the draining confidence. And the more that confidence drains, the more he lashes out. And it's sort of worrying, but also magnificent. Ros, I've noticed that there is, uh, in fiction, the, the tech bro has become, is satirized more often than politicians. It's, it's like Mark Rylance in Don't Look Up, Edward Norton in Glass Onion, um, Josh Gad in, in Avenue 5. Satire, as, as we've discovered, does not always uh, change the world. But does it, does it feel like the, the end of an era, as Alex points out? I think that the satire is, is, of the tech bros is almost a satire in a way on... Uh, Petty dictators. Yes. Because the thing that strikes me about Musk's takeover of Twitter is if you see Twitter as a little world unto itself, Mm. which in a sense it is. Yeah, it's a kind of mini metaverse, if you like. And he's the town take... square, he called yeah, it. Yeah, he thinks of it as a town square. I would take issue with <laughs> that yeah. personally, but he see- sees it that way. It is a world unto itself. It's a world that has its own rules, a lot of them unwritten. And the thing about Musk is he's come along and he's done what you know dictators basically do. And he said, right, you can only play in here if you give me money. It's the whole, you know, you, you give the party money, you get, you get a say. So it's it's the it's the corrupting mechanism and then he changes the rules when he doesn't like the result which is exactly what has happened with this ridiculous poll where he asked people if um, mm. he should stop running uh, twitter day to day and they said yes and then he said right future polls about twitter only people who have paid for twitter blue uh, status will be able to take part in and this <laughs> this kind of it's like a it's like a, a dictatorship in miniature that's what I find fascinating. Well, also, many dictators are very ignorant. And what astonishes me is things like we talked about the First Amendment, which does not apply to Twitter. So it literally doesn't understand freedom of speech. He accidentally referred to himself to Twitter as a publisher. And the greatest legal protection that, that Twitter or Facebook has <laughs> is the fact that they're not publishers. That was magnificent, wasn't yeah. it? It's like everyone went, 
What? Yeah. <laughs> what he said? So we, I mean, in this same basket of tech bro uh, nemesis, we should say Sam Bankman Freed, the um, crypto bro, the sort of collapse of various cryptocurrencies and NFTs, all the, uh, yeah. the so-called effective altruists. Um, again, this kind of technocratic hubris sort of falling apart. It does feel like it does feel like a moment. I mean, he's sure. Dominic Cummings with a lot of money. He's a he's a sort of walking advertisement for a 90 percent top rate of tax, I, isn't he? I think he, like, t- take the money away from these fuckers. I think humility is underrated. <laughs> and now at number nine, possibly the only moment of comedy to come out of Russia's uh, invasion of Ukraine was Vladimir Putin's big table. A giant white-topped oval beach table, which enables him to sit 20 feet away uh, from his generals. This does not project power and confidence. Arthur, tell us why this sums up why things have not gone so well for Putin. Yeah, well, the, the, the table, of course, has become a sort of a famous meme in its own right. And the great thing about the Internet is you can Google. It, it's a beach table, but it was made by an Italian company called Oak which is a nice little um, contradiction <laughs> there. And apparently, uh, in the case of Emmanuel Macron and I think Olaf Scholz, who were both at the far end of the table, they had both declined to take COVID tests when they went to visit uh, Putin. Uh, and Putin is famously terrified of catching COVID. He is not a young man, uh, although you know his political persona requires him to appear to be a young, maybe not a young man, but certainly a man. He's a manly man. Yes, indeed. Um, and so, yeah, P- Putin is very scared of getting COVID, probably not helped by the fact that, that the Russian COVID vaccine is not particularly effective. And morbidity in Russia is such that people of his age do often die. So... Uh, Perhaps he's right to be scared, but but as you say, it doesn't project power. He he looks like somebody who would who hides away uh, in in his vast palace, only occasionally having stage managed meetings, and probably may even be completely unaware of just how badly his war is going. Well, Stalin also became very paranoid and sealed off, and Stalin also his his military strategy largely was to throw bodies at the other side. Yeah. And it's interesting the way that features of Russia's World War II strategy, uh, which, of course, we mustn't forget, you know, did ultimately take the Russian army all the way to Berlin. Uh, but features of it have started to return in the in the 21st century war against Ukraine, such as there, there are so many accounts now that I, I don't think we can doubt them uh, of of how these conscripted Russian soldiers have barely any equipment, minimal training, and they're literally just sent into a sort of trench warfare situation uh, where they can be picked off by uh, Ukrainian artillery. So, um, yes, to become more and more like Stalin, it's hard to believe that Putin ever had that as an ambition, but he's certainly achieving it. Roz, at number eight, during the hottest British summer in recorded history, Tory MP John Hayes said of the 40-degree heatwave that it's not surprising that in snowflake Britain, the snowflakes are melting. <laughs> um, now, normally, uh, it turns out that actually kind of the, 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 the heat waves inspire concern about climate change um, because people think, blimey, it's hot. Maybe that's worrying. Elon Musk, sorry to talk about Elon Bloody Musk again. <laughs> But he talked about the woke mind virus. But is this an example of the the anti-woke mind virus where you so much want to own the libs that you just sound mad? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think most of us who saw bits of East London going up in flames apparently spontaneously were were kind of felt that he might have struck the wrong tone here. This is just a remarkable thing. It's just it's so I'm all right, Jack. You know, it's because unless you're very unlucky, you get through a 40-degree heat wave in Britain. It's, it's the weakest and the oldest who die from heat waves, usually. It's not the young, and it's not the snowflakes. And to suggest that the young are the ones who are too pathetic to tolerate something that kills older and disabled people, it's a peculiarly Tory move, because it, it fits with their privileging of the old over the young, where the young must always be at fault and the old must always uh, be be right. But, but the twist course, is that also the old ignores, people yeah. will die. Yeah. That's also been a part of the Tory. Well, just like with COVID. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So you kind of, you politically you're on the side of the old, but physically. It's a, it's a paradox which, unsurprisingly, the Tories can, can never quite resolve. And, but it's, it's basically stoking up generational warfare to avoid tackling a problem that, that it's, 
you can't personally get your head around. You don't want to get your head around. And so you just write it off as a heat wave um, rather than the evidence of a climate emergency that it actually is. Alex, I am quite in favour of freedom of speech, uh-huh. even speech I dislike. That's nice to hear. But <laughs> if I could, uh-huh. I would ban the word woke, uh, include, and, and especially wokery, uh-huh. wokeism, and any other derivative. The the wokerati. On that list. Would you ban it, you know, from the point of view of when people were being negative about it or when people were being positive about it? Nobody's positive about it. Some people are positive about it and say, you know, I'm uh, I'm woke. There's a few. No, I'd ban it anyway. I just go find another way to say what it is that you want to say. I just think it is a brain killing, it's become a brain killing word. Yeah. Hmm. It just creates this absolute farrago of nonsense. An inverted pyramid of piffle, <laughs> to quote the great man. Um, at number seven, uh, it's Trump again. His extremely tasteful winter White House, Mar-a-Lago, which is now just his house, is raided by the <laughs> FBI. Agents discover top secret documents scattered across the floor. Um, Arthur, Trump attempted boldly, I think, to claim that the documents were declassified because he said the words, these are declassified in his head. Is that I know you're not you're not a full expert on this. Is that how it works? Yeah, it's hard to think that it's likely to be, isn't it? That um, because if you could get inside Trump's head, and I don't think any of us would want to. It probably looks like that that office. Yeah, it, it was. It's it like shit everywhere. It's probably a word cloud of really awful things. Um, and the words uh, "these are declassified" might be hard to unpick from the other words. I think what Trump is trying to get at is the fact that under U.S. law, the president does have the authority to declassify certain documents. But of course, they would have to transmit that authority to other people because, as with other presidential powers, it's not done by thought. Uh, the presidency is not a telepathic presidency. <laughs> Um, so it, it requires things like executive orders and, and written, written. I'm, I'm learning a lot yeah. here. Yeah, yeah. It's, this is why people come to these podcasts for this kind of premium insight. <laughs> it's not Professor X. <laughs> so yeah, so I think I think that's a difficulty that that whilst thinking it is is clearly good for Trump himself, it doesn't help other people know that he's declassified them. But you also said he wanted to terminate the Constitution, so that presumably would solve some of these problems. Yeah. Yes, although, again, um, I'm not sure what the power of of a former president who's lost an election is in terms of constitutional termination. Um, but Hopefully limited. Yeah, you've got, got to hope so. Um, but, but I suppose it comes back to the word cloud. I, I think, um, I wonder what would, what would be on that Trump word cloud inside his head. A big me in the middle. Yeah, just Trump, <laughs> Trump, Trump, Trump. Or, or maybe that... You know, little image of the toy monkey with the symbols in in <laughs> It would all be in capital letters, definitely. Yeah. The the thing that I'm intrigued to see over the next couple of years is, I think, the sort of general realization that um, that Ron DeSantis is an incredibly dislikable man. Mm. I'm not sure if you've sort of seen DeSantis yeah, in yeah, action because yeah. a lot of people are just going, well, he is obviously he he's got all the shitty politics that the Republicans want, but he's not like a, a maniac threatening to terminate the Constitution yeah. and possibly under criminal investigation. The hitch, I think, for the Republicans is that he's incredibly charmless. And like sort of previous heroes like um, Scott Walker, do you remember him? Not the singer? No. Um, he was the Wisconsin, Wisconsin governor? Wisconsin governor. Yeah, very, oh, yeah, very, very, very successful there. Um, terrible on the national stage. Yeah. People like Rick Perry. There's there's a there's a thing where basically governors get talked up, and then they step out onto the national stage, and everyone's just like, "This guy's awful." But but he might benefit basically from the effect that Sunak is at the moment getting a huge benefit from, which is having followed someone, where basically if you make it on stage and you don't make fun of disabled people and shit yourself. <laughs> then it's everyone goes thumbs up. It's a win. I, but I'm quite excited to see them go head to head because even 
and then if DeSantis wins, Trump will do everything he can to tear him down. I don't think he'll it's do gonna it, be, It's going to be I, horrific. Yeah, like I was telling you a, a couple of uh, podcasts ago, that like not a single campaign hire, not a single campaign event, not a single campaign rally since he announced. I don't think he's planning to run. I think he's just maintaining his this sort of holding pattern so he can anoint a person that he wants to see in order to stick it to DeSantis. And, 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 sell, and sell NFTs, that is essentially, yeah, that's yeah. his destination. Yeah, yeah. At number six, Prince William and Kate visit the Caribbean for some photo opportunities, and it goes horribly wrong as countries demand reparations for slavery and the Jamaican prime minister tells them it will soon be a republic. Ros, was this kind of? I mean, obviously, it was. It was. There were certain uh, photo situations that were that were suboptimal. Was this just a terrible idea from the start? Well, I can see why they did it, um, but I think that's actually proved to be more damaging than the whole Harry and Meghan saga. Um, you know, damaging clearly though that has been, because it's not about a Netflix documentary. It's about the way the royals treat the rest of the Commonwealth, what they do when they visit it. And it's not just about new joiners to the firm who end up being hacked off with the way they're treated, but about the countries themselves and their whole relationship with Britain. Uh, it's about the whole purpose of the royal family, in fact. You know, if they can't do royal tours of the Commonwealth anymore without annoying people, what can they do? It goes to the heart of what the royal family is for. Is it now just a conduit for unhappiness about the way that Britain has behaved and continues to behave often towards uh, its former colonies. And if that is all it is, it is in trouble. But I think we may be moving in that direction. Arthur, of course, this was before the death of the Queen. Do you get the sense, I mean, we've only had a few months of, of, of Charles, um, not that I really think of much that he's actually done. Mm. He hates pens. We know, but that's all I we remember. <laughs> it's just pens. It's a good start. Um, I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a it's a it's a policy. <laughs> he just needs a good biro. He needs to stop hacking around with those messy fountain yeah. pens and get himself a decent, good quality biro. So, uh, so Arthur, was this a kind of this this disastrous trip just a sign of perhaps the future for the royals without the queen to hold it all together? Well, I think there's there's always a challenge with junior royals on uh, trips to countries which are probably more complicated than the people organising a trip have, have bargained for. And I speak with a little bit of experience because I hosted Prince Edward on his visit to Trinidad and Tobago. Um, luckily, we didn't have any of the particular um, dramas that beset uh, wow. William and Kate. But it is a it's a minefield because of this point that you're you're particularly in the Caribbean. You know, the history is colonialism with slavery on top. And that that's a potentially combustible mix. Um, I think there's a challenge because ultimately British diplomacy makes an assumption that a royal visit is an unalloyed good, uh, because if you challenge that assumption, then you, you're, you're where Ros is, which is why do we even have a royal family? Uh, so you have to you have to conclude crazy. That, that, <laughs> that, that royal visits are good. But I think there is there is a general challenge with royal visits um, and, and, and the way the royal family projects itself into the Commonwealth. It does come down to this point that now now the Queen is dead. I had thought and, and I'd heard this from, you know, people well placed who, who had reason to be well informed that there was going to be a debate within the Commonwealth about whether or not, if it continues, mm. it should be led by the British monarch. But in fact, that debate was never heard. So it seems to me that the organisation and the community has kind of committed itself to a sort of irrelevance because of this obsession with one particular family. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now?, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. You 
join us at number five. The cost of the Rwanda plan to expel immigrants is finally revealed after what Yvette Cooper described as an outrageous cover-up. It will cost £190 million pounds or £100,000 per person. In polls, even very few Tory voters think that this is a good scheme. Alex, so far, not one person has been moved out of Britain under the plan. What? <laughs> what is the point of you something? You sound disappointed. What? <laughs> Get on with it. No, what, like, what is the point of something which is, is inhumane, obviously that's the point, expensive and completely ineffective? Okay, so let me start with a factual update because the case that went on uh, that issued its decision on Monday. So mm. Yvette Cooper questioned the current uh, Home Secretary, Suela, your favourite, um, about it. And what came out, because the government had to put in evidence in that case, and so what came out is that um, Rwanda can accommodate a maximum of 200 asylum seekers and that the government has committed to putting a lot more money into the scheme. 200 people. Yes, that's right. And so the cost now looks to be more than a million pounds per person. So, yeah, I don't know why it is there. I don't think anyone in the government knows why it is there any longer. I am, I am quite convinced the whole thing started at so, a sort of blue sky thinking spitballing that went really terribly wrong. Um, the idea that some third country could process applications was floated vaguely last year. Then some junior official mentioned Albania, and Albania went nuts and said, this has nothing to do with us. They haven't spoken to us. We wouldn't do this. And then suddenly the government went absolutely crazy trying to find a country. There were there was like a month where they were literally just cold calling, like double glazing salespeople, cold calling countries saying, can you do it? And Rwanda, I suspect, is the first country that said, sure, I'll take your money. Um, and and then it has stuck. And the more they get pressed on it, the more they entrench themselves well, in it. This is what surprises me. Um, Roz, there's been some changes in the British government this year. And it seems, it seems to me that what you do when, when a prime minister or two move on and a home secretary moves on, um, that you're allowed to just kind of ditch some of their bad ideas. That, that is the perfect opportunity to just go, well, you know what? That was Pretty Patel's thing. You know, mm. we're turning over a new leaf here. Why are they so wedded to this? Because I think it came up even in the Tory leadership contest, right? Mm. That, that everybody maybe not every candidate, but, but a lot of the candidates um, were fully committed to the Rwanda scheme, as if, this, as if this kind of ridiculous idea that had only just emerged was now a kind of totemic Tory policy, like low taxes. Because the Tory party is still terrified of the far right. And it's right to be terrified of the far right, because look what the far right made it do. It made it embroil itself in Brexit which was, as we know, a stunningly bad idea. But ultimately, it was pressure from UKIP and uh, Nigel Farage and the Brexit party that led us to where we are today. So it's not surprising that the party still feels that the far right could pose an existential threat to the existence of the Conservative Party. And indeed, we're st- still seeing that now where you're, you know, you've got the Reform Party, which is not yet led by Nigel Farage, but could be in the future and which is not rising by much in the polls, but is getting up to about 9%, which is starting to, to Oh, right. worry worry conservatives a bit and it is a perennial threat and they know how easy it is for someone like Nigel Farage to weaponize the threat of immigration much as we would like it not to be the case it is a salient issue still with a lot of people it will be a more salient issue if the far right is in some way able to blame aspects of the cost of living crisis on immigration which it has not yet been able to do fortunately but which it could And this, I think, is still haunting Rishi Sunak. And this is why he felt he had to appoint Suella Braverman to replace Priti Patel. And then, um, you know, and and why she got her job back after only a week despite screwing up. Do you know what, though, in this recent poll where where a very small number of uh, people thought the Rwanda scheme was the best solution to um, migrants arriving on small boats, by far the most popular solution 
was a uh, a fair and humane process for uh, processing um, asylum applications. Mm, Literally, absolutely. the best idea mm. was the most popular idea, and, and the, the most worst idea <laughs> was the least popular idea. So that's right wing populism for you. All you need is thirty to forty percent of people to think that you know the most vicious thing is the right idea, and you have a problem. But what an extraordinary irony that the Home Office should have tried to outsource this problem to Albania, given that how many Albanians we have seen trying to cross the channel through precisely this means in the, in recent months. Well, yes, you say that. And yet in the small boat that recently got in trouble and people were rescued, there was not an Albanian in sight. Yeah. The highest nationality on that boat were Afghans, yeah. to whom we made great big promises right, right. about the resettlement scheme and then instantly a scheme that is impossible to apply for. Well, I'm sure Rishi Sunak and Sola Bravma will do the right thing mm-hmm. in 2023 mm-hmm. after being visited by a trio of ghosts this Christmas. <laughs> uh, at number four, the summer of sewage. Overnight beaches were closed due to effluent in the water and the government has admitted that beach closures are not even being monitored. Arthur, is our beautiful brown sea uh, another benefit of Brexit? Uh, Well, brilliantly uh, or otherwise, it turns out it is because um, the Environment Agency, which is the uh, hopeless quango that exists to um, stop sewage being pumped into rivers and sea, um, has had two sort of things happen to it. One is that its its own budget has been slashed uh, considerably during the sort of austerity era, but also onward. Uh, But also it has it has specifically relaxed regulation on water companies saying that if you can't get the chemicals you need because of us leaving the EU, then it's okay to, to put the shit in the water. And I, I paraphrase, but that's basically the, the guidance. Um, I remember as a kid, there was this thing about blue flag beaches because that was an EU thing. And then there were a few of those in Britain. And then we got a few more. And I think people were quite proud of the fact that you could go swimming and there weren't floating turds everywhere. But, um, I suppose, in a way, that's just the EU nanny state. Um, and being British, part of being British is, is a pride you take in swimming in raw sewage. It, it, what, because it, they're British terms. Exactly. And it's what made there. us great as a country. Um, so I, I'm, I'm happy. I, for one, am happy that we've got away from that, that sort of, you know, Brussels bureaucracy. One of the things that has stuck with me uh, through all the episodes this year is when we had Luke Trill on for More in Common. And he, he mentioned this phrase that keeps coming up in focus groups, shambles Britain. And because broken Britain, I think, is, is slightly sort of too associated with David Cameron, mm. I'm, really, I'm really wedded to shambles Britain. It, it applies to everything from sort of, you know, failing services to shitty beaches. <laughs> yeah. I actually prefer broken because somebody's done the breaking and we know who's done the breaking. Whereas a shambles can just be, you know, everything descending into shit and it's nobody's fault. Yeah, a, sh- a shambles would, would imply that someone misspelt a memo somewhere <laughs> that said post-Brexit Britain wants to be a country of affluence and, <laughs> and someone in another department ran with it in the wrong yeah. direction. It's all a bit Humphrey Appleby. And whereas broken, you know, yeah. someone broke this. And, I, <laughs> you know, yeah. we need to hold these guys to account. The broken Britain thing, I mean, if you consider that David Cameron was saying it in 2010, um, and you only have to look at plenty of indicators of public services and general population dynamics. And I think almost any of us would pick 2010 over now. The idea that that was a broken Britain. I mean, God, what, what would you give to have 2010 Britain back? So we're going to have to call this one really broken yeah. Britain. <laughs> this time it's serious. Smashed Britain. Uh, number three. The Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization ruling by the Supreme Court struck down Roe v. Wade and enabled uh, states to set their own abortion laws. Um, Roz, this caused demonstrations across the U.S., enormous outrage and, and upset. And what intrigued me, I think, was that the Republicans and conservative um, activists didn't quite know how to react to getting what they wanted. Yeah, and undoubtedly there was a backlash, as we saw with the results in the midterms, not being nearly as bad for Joe Biden and the Democrats as a lot of people were expecting. And of course, there were five states 
and at the same time as the midterm elections that put the question on the ballot whether abortion uh, should be should be allowed and in all those cases it was um so you know you 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 could say that it had been a a definite uh, boon to to the party to the democrat party a democratic party throughout the the country also the supreme court's authority has been undermined particularly mm. in the eyes of the young which ultimately doesn't help the republicans when they were trying to pack it with their supporters in order to achieve what they wanted to do so that may well rebound on them you're also seeing Ron DeSantis who we mentioned earlier who's been decidedly kind of tepid on abortion recently not saying much on it clearly wanting not quite sure what direction to go in on this one but it's possible to look for the upside for the Democrats a bit too much on this one I mean ultimately the Republicans got what they wanted and the important thing is not really that the Democrats did better than they expected welcome though that is the important thing is that abortion is now banned or heavily restricted in in more and more US states they have got what they wanted and there are further legal cases coming up um, in in the new year which will probably cement those decisions and that advantage that they saw. Can, can I offer a slightly more optimistic counterpoint? Of course, please do. So Roe v. Wade was always a sort of system patch, mm. um, which didn't actually address the underlying legislation, just sort of um, provided a get-out clause from it. So maybe this is the spur that... America needs to put this on a federal legislation footing, right. which should have happened long ago, let's face it. So yeah, it that should. would be my silver line. Well, yeah, I mean, obviously, they don't have the ability to do that yeah. in the current makeup of Congress. And since this is about comedy moments, I don't think anything for me that happened throughout the year will outdo the first time I saw that Candace Taylor battle bus, the Republican nominee. Uh, for the midterm elections, who went out in a battle bus that that I think was meant to um, do a list of the things she supported, but read very, very wrong. And she went out into the state <laughs> with this bus that just read, Jesus, just guns, guns, babies. Because <laughs> that was, uh, it's not in the official biblical canon. It is magnificent, yeah. though, as a, just as a, as a sort of... Um, tech faux pas, you know, whoever was designing that advert really put their foot in it. My hope, Rose, like you said, it, it's, it's really no consolation to all the women who are, who are suffering in those states and that a lot of lives are going to be ex affected extremely adversely. My hope is, I think, maybe is another case of unpopulism. They're not very popular, a lot of their positions, and the only way they can get them is through is through gerrymandering, is through quirks of the Electoral College, is through the weighting uh, of, of the Senate, all the ways in which Republicans are sort of disincentivized from actually having policies that voters like. But I wonder whether the kind of evidence is sort of m mounting up and that what they've realized is that, sure, in certain state legislatures, you can push through appalling stuff on, on abortion, on, you know, on, on trans rights, for example. But it's not out there. The popularity, the support in the country is not there. And you have to feel like, sure, you, there's only so long you can rig democracy if, if, if your policies are not very popular. True. But the worry for me is that the, the people who this affects most deeply are people who are poorer, who can't travel easily to another state if they need to get an abortion, who may not be able to arrange uh, it on... Uh, it's online via telemedicine, or it may be too late to do that safely. It's the people who don't have a voice in the media. And you see this with austerity in Britain as well. And I don't think we've realised it adequately in, until recently. It's those people who are being most hurt by these policies. Mm. Other people can buy their way out of them. You know, nobody is, you know, nobody is, is uh, who's, who's well off, you know, in their 30s needs an abortion in America is necessarily going to be stopped from having them because there are going to be ways around it that they will be afford, uh, able to afford to do. The, the law applies to the poorest and it doesn't apply to people who can afford to pay for an abortion. Uh, number two, the trust meltdown. I mean, so recent yet so long ago. Um, <laughs> 
you may remember, Kwasi Kwarteng cuts every tax you can think of, tanks the pound, gets sacked on the flight home from the US. Liz Truss then becomes the shortest serving PM ever, lasting just seven weeks and making her supermarket lettuce internationally famous. Sounds very unlikely when you just read it out like that, doesn't it? Um, you may remember. <laughs> but even it just there's that surreal quality to it. Yes. Um, I find that about this whole year, to be honest. The idea that we, the Boris Johnson went, then we had Liz Truss, and then Liz Truss went, the Queen died. Like, it's a, it's been a lot. Yeah. Um, the last three years have been a lot. It's all been, a, the whole life yeah. of the podcast has been a lot. A lot. Um, was this the end of days for free market libertarians? Oh, no. Come on, Dorian. The The recipe was great. It was the pizza chef that was to blame, mm-hmm. even though they chose the chef, trained the chef, supervised the chef, looked at the result, tasted it, and gave it the thumbs up. Mm, um, pizza. And there's a particular... It's not even a tweet. It's a thread that Matthew Lesh put out, the the head of public policy at the Institute of Economic Affairs, the day of the budget, just before everything went wrong, where he literally listed every single measure in the budget and put a green tick next to each, a sort of four-tweet thread, which I've now saved. And every time one of them says... This wasn't done properly. Yeah, yeah. I just re-alert them to the existence of that thread where they saw exactly what the government mm. was doing and said, this is great. This is going to be great. Turns out not. I liked all the pieces like people like Alistair Heath, that last real conservatism. Yes, yes. And it... <laughs> a radical, yes. I, Alistair Heath. I remember one piece with a, with a headline like three days before it all went wrong where it said, the liberal elite is about to be proven embarrassingly wrong. And it's like three days later, you couldn't buy a button with a tenner. One of, one of Alistair Heath's, perhaps his finest headline of all is, I've, I opened it actually as we were discussing this thing, was Quasi yeah. Quarteng's budget is a moment in history that will radically <laughs> transform Britain. And it's still there. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's Certainly fair. what he was right about. Something. Exactly. So we, I think we shouldn't underestimate uh, Mr. Heath and his um, analytical skills. Other, it lasts only about as long as a season of the White Lotus. So there aren't that many to pick from. But but do you have a favourite moment from the Trust Weeks? If I hadn't said Alistair Heath, who who's already been claimed, I think it was actually that that bizarre press conference right at the end where she just stood there looking, looking sort of completely spaced out and said, uh... Uh, and then, and then she would desperately try to pick a journalist who would ask a question. And I think it lasted for all of seven minutes until she sort of <laughs> yeah, ran yeah. off. Um, she's like, "These yes, questions are yes, terrible." Yes, yes, she asked the the Sun, the Daily Mail, and the Telegraph. All were incredibly aggressive, and she sort of just shuffled off like a Julie Walters character in a Victoria Wood sketch. Yeah, just went off to the side of the stage. It was magnificent. And, and to think that even at that time, you know, that was the prime minister of a nuclear-armed state, um, you know, well, for all that Britain's in a mess, you know, that's theoretically a really powerful person. And, mm. and she was just so egregiously pathetic. It was, it was just bizarre. M- mine was um, the surreal timing, which meant that she uh, spoke at the Queen's funeral, which in historical terms is essentially photobombing. Mm. <laughs> 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 just Everyone, in yeah. frame. Everyone's going to be like, "Who? Who was that?" <laughs> I think mine was that though that round of interviews that she gave to local radio, oh, yes. local BBC radio stations, <laughs> each of which was worse than the one before. Oh my god, that was such a good day, wasn't it? It was just it, it, she was just crucified. It it was so astonishingly bad. You could not believe that someone with media skills that appalling could have risen to the most important job in the country. Well, the, I'm going to extend a little bit of empathy here because I think my fear is probably quite a common fear is that you really, really want something. Sometimes I even put myself forward to things because I'm just like, will I be able to live up to it? And, and the idea that there's just something that you've dreamt of, it's the top, the most powerful job in the land or if you're Kwasi Kwarteng, the, the second most powerful. You know, the, the dream has come true. People doubted you, but now you're here. It's what you've been building up to and you fuck it so badly that everyone in the world is laughing at you and comparing you to a lettuce and 
it, it's all gone so horribly wrong on a, what I think must be, a, that must be quite nightmarish, even if richly deserved. Yes, it must be one of those performance dreams that where you, right. you're suddenly on stage and you're in the wrong play. You haven't learned any of the lines. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> you're naked except for a sword um, and you don't know what you're doing, what scene it is. But can I just say, she was the second one in a row where that happened. And at least, I'm, I mean, I'm not one to defend Liz Truss, but at least she went down in technicolor fr frames because she made the wrong policy choices, because she thought these policies were good, and it turned out they were shit. Boris Johnson, also someone who had been building up to this position that he considered his by right for decades, and finally arrives there, managed to oust himself because of no other reason than his personal failings. It wasn't a policy decision that ousted him. It was the fact that he couldn't follow, like, the most basic rules of public service. This leads us on uh, to number one. <laughs> do, 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 do. Partygate and the endless fall of Boris Johnson. It's an amazing nine-month uh, psychodrama. And Americans, I've noticed, American political podcasts I listen to are very jealous of, of Britain because it turns out that we will get rid of a prime minister because of an egregious scandal. We will get rid of a prime minister because their policy was awful. Uh, you know, the, 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 these people are not bulletproof. Now, we did have a discussion, Roz, last December, I think, on a live show. Um, and there was some doubt. I can't remember who said said what. But we weren't unanimous on the idea that that, that Boris Johnson uh, would be brought down by this. But by God, he was. Yes, uh, it's. <sighs> Although ultimately, you do have to remember that it was the business with Pincher that put an end to him, and not specifically Partygate. He was still trying to hang on and survive that. The final blow, well, I mean, it's also the Owen Patterson affair. So there was there were, there were a whole load of things at that time that were piling up and piling up. And Partygate by that time was just one of them. But I agree that Partygate is what lodged in most people's minds. And it's very hard to move on from Partygate. There's, there's just no closure. Johnson is still using public money to defend himself in the inquiry into his conduct, mm. despite earning a million pounds from speeches since he left office. He's still claiming that money. He's going to stand again as an MP. Well, he says How he has the brass neck to do that, I know. but I don't think he will. He won't. And he may well stand again for the leadership. That has been talked about in Tory circles mm. as a possibility in yeah. the future at some point. And for people who suffered as a result of obeying lockdown rules, a lot of us, there can be no closure to this. People are still, even now, being issued with fines. You know, this month, someone was fined £1,000 when a child didn't have a COVID test when flying into the UK in February. And he got away with just one fixed penalty notice. The double standard is so extraordinarily egregious. Arthur, do you think that perhaps we won't really know how, how angry people still are with Boris Johnson until he properly resurfaces as opposed to his kind of fake resurfacing where he thought somehow he was going to be leader again? Yeah, well, um, I think the interesting thing about that point where he flew back from the Caribbean with his sort of uh, would-be um, leadership campaign is that it suggests that he thinks he was removed on a sort of technicality. He doesn't think that he was removed because he was unfit for public office. Fundamentally, he remains the people's choice. Now, obviously, there hasn't been an election since then, but I think the opinion polling is pretty clear that he has he he was al always a polarizing figure, but uh, and so he was always deeply unpopular with right-thinking people, such as the listeners to this podcast. But he's now deeply unpopular with everyone, basically. Um, mm. So I, I think it's quite unlikely because I think the Tory party, you know, they picked Liz Truss perhaps stupidly, but I think that, that there wasn't so much evidence that the public were going to find her to be such a joke. And in fact, you know, she, she fulfilled her own destiny there. Whereas we all, we all know what we think of Boris Johnson. It seems to be very unlikely that he's going to be able to rehabilitate himself. But who knows? I'd like to move on because since 2016, it just seems that we've been entranced as if by a snake, yeah. by Trump and Johnson, 
the mm. two big populists. Now, America, unfortunately, can still not quite move on. But I think we surely can. Having to think about him all the time felt so oppressive. And I suppose why I have a more optimistic spin on, on, on what happened is because there was a real sort of cynicism verging on nihilism where it got to the, like, you know, the nothing matters people. Mm. You know, Tories are awful and voters are stupid and we'll never be rid of this guy. And it's like, well, we are. We did. For now. Yeah. And we may well be in the future because I think when he pops up, as Matt Hancock has found, it's like, you're not, people do remember mm. why they were angry with you in the first place. You know, Matt Hancock's book and, and um, a book about Boris Johnson, I noticed, has been filed under crime in one certain yes, branch of Waterstones. Funny. It's like, I think there is actually quite a lot of anger still out there about what happened during the pandemic. And, you know, all these dickheads we've been discussing today, because it is largely just a bunch of dickheads. And again, that parallel, that parallel of entitlement and of the, the glass bowl in which they've lived their entire lives. Yes. Like Musk, who doesn't like the result of the poll, so he's going to change the result. Like Johnson, who wasn't ousted for anything really significant, but because the herd moved. Like Trump, who refuses to accept that he lost the election. You know, it's that constant redefining of the rules that I think people will ultimately get tired of. They will go, no, you lost. Just deal with it. You're out. Well, can we throw in, you know, Bolsonaro being defeated, yeah. Putin, you know, um, having caused enormous suffering, but, you know, certainly failed to achieve his aims, looking like a like a weaker figure. I, and sometimes, maybe I'm too Pollyanna-ish about this, but sometimes it feels almost like I've, I've often felt the reverse of what I felt in 2016. And, and, and in its subsequent years, where it's just like the bastards are winning because the world is a place for bastards mm. and nothing's going to stop them. And actually, I've, this year, I think we have seen the downfall to, to various degrees of an enormous number of bastards. It, it feels like there is a very slight uptick to the curve. The arc of the yeah. universe bends towards schadenfreude. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What does our resident optimist think? No, I, it's a it's a narrative that on my better days I could buy into, and it's also you know don't forget France. It was also good that Emmanuel Macron is still president of France and not Marine Le Pen. Mm. Um, of course, what happened in Italy was not so good, but as you say, there are signs that the electorate are getting very very tired of populists, and yeah, that's probably something to hold on to for twenty twenty three. Well, that is the cheering end of the show and my last Oh God, What Now for a while. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, and thanks you to my best buds, Alex Andreu. You're very welcome. Ros Taylor. Thank you. And Arthur Snell. Always a pleasure. Remember, you can always get the podcast a little early when you back us on Patreon and you'll get a shout out as well, like these lucky people who we'll be thanking over our theme tune, Demon is a Monster, by Corner Shop. Hello and a huge festive cuddle from me to Daniel, Phil Lewis, Philip Fry, Jonathan Beeson, Chris Mead and Ian Stone. Merry Christmas and a kiss under the mistletoe from me to Caroline Barker, Trish Mulholland, Michael Parsons, Dina Hitchcock, Graham J. Layton and Alistair Lacey. Hello and a personal carol from me to Cindy Lee, David Wood, Michael Hughes, Heather Dillon, The Mysterious Cyber Girl, and Matthew Hurd. And a ho-ho-ho from me to Tim Luscombe, Ian Miles, Simon Howard, Jackie H, Alistair Wood, Marianne Richards, and David Wood. Thanks for listening and for your support over the year. Happy Christmas, and we'll see you in 2023. Oh God, What Now? It was presented by Dorian Linsky, with Arthur Snell, Alex Andreu, and Roz Taylor. Audio productions from me, Robin Lieber. The producers are Alex Reese and Jack Gerbertson. The assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor is Andrew Harrison. And Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the extra bit for Patreon backers, which is, of course, going to be Christmassy. Uh, so we're going to be talking about what is making Christmas worse and what is making Christmas better. So the usual <laughs> optimists v pessimists <laughs> death match. So I'm going to kick things off here with my with my theory. 
your your thesis. My the- a thesis, if you will, <laughs> um, that we basically live in a kind of uh, eternal present with Christmas. That nothing, not not a gift. I would like to live in an eternal gift. Um, <laughs> but the, the Christmas has always been that time of year where you just, it's a bit like this again. And that can be really good because you're like, oh, tradition and ritual. And sometimes you just feel like your life never changes. Um, and I feel like culturally we have reached this point, thanks to streaming, where nothing really changes. So this, I think the Christmas number one in America for the last few years has been Mariah Carey, one of Christmas is you. The Christmas charts are always flooded with also, it's like it's the time Ben Crosby's in the top 40, mm. that kind of thing. Uh, the same old movies get reissued. You can go to the cinema and you can see uh, Home Alone and Die Hard and It's a Wonderful Life and Batman Returns, the most Christmassy of all the movies. Uh, and also, te- Christmas television is now basically... Is tele- and that was a little teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more, oh God, what an hour every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £3 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God, What Else, every Monday morning. Your support keeps us going. Thank you for listening. Happy Christmas and see you in 2023.